0: Can you hear me back there in the back? Uh, I had two uh, recent encounters leading up to this talk that I want to share with you briefly. Uh, Something about me that probably most of you don't know is that not only do I like to teach, I love to teach. And I really love to be with people one-to-one and in small groups. Uh, Sitting up in front of 90-plus people trying to give a talk that makes some sense in a monologue fashion. Not my most favorite thing to do. Uh, so I walk out before the last sitting and just blown away by how beautiful it is out there. I'd been outside just a couple of times very briefly, and it was like, wow. And so I find myself drawn into walking. I'm walking down the driveway, and uh, it's a little voice whispering in my ear, you know, do you really have to go back? You know, really? It's so beautiful out here. right? And there's the aversity of mind being very sweet and sneaky, and the grasping mind saying, I really like this. And uh, then it goes, well, you know, you could give a really high emptiness teaching. You could just not show up. <laughs> and, <laughs> and at that point I knew I was in real trouble and I turned around and came back. So, the the other encounter was with Larry uh, before supper, and he says, so, how's your talk going? You you know what you're going to do? I said, well, I've got a beginning and I've got a middle. I don't have an end. He said, oh, no problem. There is no ending. (laughs) That's the bad news, Okay because we could be here a long time. The good news is Matthew's under direct orders that if I go beyond 45 minutes, he's to reach over and smack me in the back of the head. So the the talk, who knows, the theater afterwards could be quite entertaining, so stick around. Uh, So we're at the end of day three. Here we are, Uh, with some exceptions you'll be surprised, at least most people are surprised, how at some point we hit the retreat and we, we say, wow, where did it go? Where did it go? You know, now I'm in my last round of interviews. Now I'm in my last sitting. Now I'm packing my bags. Wow, what happened? Not unlike our life, right? Not unlike our life. We turn around and it's like gone. You know, we've got kids and all of a sudden, you know, they're adults and they've got their kids. Or we're retiring, you know, or we turn around and it's gone. Um, So pay attention to that, please. Uh, You never know when you'll be back here again or if you'll be back here again. Uh, And none of us knows what the future holds. Uh, So take care. Um, what I want to try and do tonight is kind of move our conversation along about the practice of relationship. And, uh, uh, Larry and Matthew will both continue to, uh, talk about this in different ways. One of the really nice things about working with, you know, four people who are really pretty much on the same page, but very different. Uh, is that it's like circumambulating, going around something. You know, you're going to get different views. And hopefully one of the views resonates with you. Um, The ones that don't, they don't. No problem. Hopefully and probably something about one of these views will will grab you a bit. Um, You may know that all four of us, to one degree or another, have been... Influenced by a teacher named Jiddu Krishnamurti, as well as Vimala Tukar, and uh, part of our work around relationship uh, is from them, uh, not something we made up, and not something that you find much of in the in the Buddha Dharma, um, and certainly not in contemporary uh, expressions of that. Um, so i I acknowledge and honor and am in, and just tremendously grateful for that influence uh and that that's something that we share together It's a very sweet thing um so krishnamurti uh observed that uh, we cannot not be in relationship that life is lived in relationship and life is relationship um And when you think about that, I mean, are we never not in relationship with something? Uh, It could be the pain in our back. Right. It could be uh, salivating as we smell delicious smells coming out of the kitchen. Um, My room is right over the kitchen, so that's a fresh one for me. Um, It could be driving. Uh, It could be. the bell going off in the morning and how that touches the mind and immediately the mind's in relationship with that. Uh, People, certainly. Uh, It's pretty hard to avoid people. Right? Pretty hard. Um, Even when we want to. And uh, so uh, intimate relationships, colleagues, friends, relatives, uh, and so on. We're always in relationship, so why not learn to practice it? You know, why not learn to work with it in the service of of getting free from what the mind does in terms of creating suffering, constriction, separation. Um, it would seem to be a, a logical thing to inquire into. Um, and Kay talked. He was. Krishna G.K., Krishnamurti, uh, talked about the the um, uh, metaphor of a mirror and that relationship functions as a mirror. Uh, just so I know how much of this to explain, how many people have been in a house of mirrors at the, at the fair or the circus? Right? Okay. Okay. Uh, I used to love that when I, when I was a kid. The circus would come to town and, you know, we'd go and I'd make a beeline for the, the house of mirrors, the fun house. And it's, for those of you who don't know, it's literally full of mirrors. And each mirror uh, distorts your image in some way. So I stand in front of the mirror. And all of a sudden, I'm like this. Right? I go to the next mirror and I'm like this. And the next mirror looks like that. And the next mirror, I'm good from here down, but from here up, it's like, eh. And each mirror that one stands in front of reflects a different image. And it's set up in a way that once you get in, it's not so easy to get out. That the mirrors are, are set up in a way that you can't really tell where the exit is. And so you kind of have to feel your way through this maze of mirrors all the time, finding yourself reflected back to yourself in these weird and unexpected ways. You might see that this is a pretty easy analogy (laughs) for relationship. So usually, or often, I would say, often, we're not actually in relationship with the person, place or thing that is here. Often we're in relationship with our thoughts, our ideas, our images, our preferences. That's what then gets projected onto this other person. If I've got an image of you, I'm not in relationship with you, I'm in relationship with that image. Now, much of this plays out as, I've got an image of you, you have to meet that image. You have to be that image. It's a projection of me. (laughs) And if I have that invested in you, and you behave in a way that's different from that image, conflict will arise. It's guaranteed. And we see this all the time, very simple things, if we live with somebody. Right. Uh, would you please pick your towels up? How come I get up in the morning and the dishes are still dirty in the sink? You know, I like the dishes clean. I hate to get up to a dirty kitchen in the morning. Right. Could you turn the lights off, please? I'm always turning the lights off. And since I'm playing, paying the electric bill, that's a real problem. Now, of course, in the beginning, that's not so much of an issue in a a relationship, in an intimate relationship, because we're we're on drugs. (laughs) Right? We are in truly an altered state. I mean, nobody should be allowed to operate heavy-moving equipment in that state. And we make life decisions out of that. And then one day we wake up, and we find that the drug's wearing off. And we look over and we say, uh oh. <laughs> and the very things that we were attracted to now have mysteriously become problems. Right? Oh, he or she was so cute and so endearing when they did that. And now, not so much. Right? well, I really like my boss when I had my interview and those first few weeks were great. But, you know, his tone of voice now is like, I really don't like that. And you can extrapolate that to, you know, in any way you choose, it's not that difficult to do. Um, That in and of itself is not a problem. Where it gets to be a problem is that now... even though I'm the one who's feeling annoyance, created by my own ideas about how you should be and my aversion to how you actually are, still not a problem. But then I ask you to be somebody else. I ask you to be somebody who does the dishes, picks up the towels, you know, turns off the lights, etc, etc. Right? Now, these are these are in some ways trivial examples, but this is where we get hooked. So then it becomes you if you were someone that would, you know, easily turn off light, maybe you've got ADD, I don't know. Right? And you don't close doors and you don't turn off lights. I'm now asking you to be somebody else. And I'm waiting for you to be that somebody else so I can be relieved of my aversion. I'm now dependent on you being somebody else so I feel okay. So if I'm in a relationship with you and I'm saying to you, okay, I really love you. And I want to be here. But, you know, in order for that to happen, you've got to be somebody other than who you are. Now, does that sound a little crazy? I mean, just a little? Please say yes. (laughs) Please say yes. (laughs) And how does it feel to be on the receiving end of that? Discounted for who you are? Asked to do the impossible? I mean, I've had lots of experiences where if I could be someone different, I'd do it in a heartbeat. Right? It doesn't work that way. And it doesn't mean that in, in relationships where there's genuine, intimate communication and the images are seen and the crazy expectations are acknowledged, that there can't be dialogue that, that is a problem-solving process. It's part of good, intimate relationships. It's part of any relationship. But that's not what usually happens. I have an idea about how you should be based on a perception which is based on conditioning, which is very reflexive, largely unexamined, and then you have to be different. So how do we practice with that? When this is coming up all the time, how can these things be seen and worked with? How do we actually work with relationship as a mirror? Because what it's doing is it's showing me my own mind stuff. Right, now this is just this is just a perspective, okay? If it seems like it makes sense, wonderful. If it doesn't, something else will. This is a perspective. The way it touches the teachings of the Buddha is this is about citta. This is about the third foundation of mindfulness. This is about what goes on up here. It's not just happenstance. That's one of the four foundations of mindfulness which underlies all Buddhist practice. So this is about a way to work with Chitta, with the stuff of the mind. So how do we do that? One of the things that we've been doing. um, hmm. So your job is to remind me that I'm about to take a diversion here, okay, And that I want to get back to how to work with this. And I forgot what the diversion was, so it doesn't really matter. But stay alert. (laughs) She's good. She's good. All right, I made the right choice. Uh, We've been spending a lot of time with this breath-body work, right? All of these practices are what one might call second-order conditioning. We've taken we're, we're taking this sort of normal conditioned human mind, which if you pick up any newspaper, you know, it's not working out so well. Right. I mean, it's a mess out there. And this is the mind that's running the planet amok. So we're taking that sort of normal conditioned human mind and we're offering it a way to begin to organize itself, stabilize itself, begin to understand itself in a way. This is work. I mean, this takes tremendous effort, not sort of a, you know, a militaristic, writ but it takes real persistence and genuine courage. It's one of the reasons I said, sit still, don't move. And what will happen as a result of that a kind of natural resilience, a kind of endurance, and a kind of real gentle courage will grow up out of that. You know, you won't be quite so blown away by every itch and tickle that you feel you got to, you know, immediately move to, reflexively. Not out of wisdom, out of aversion. And so wisdom begins to grow. This is a second order of conditioning. It's not what the Buddha finally points to, but he says it's absolutely foundational. What Matthew was talking about, about shamata, you know, a way to train and develop the mind so it's really fit to do this work. And we find that if we if we're working with relationships, if we're if we're really seeing how thought operates, we're looking at how we're actually living, a kind of natural order emerges out of that. We see what works and what doesn't work, and we have some understanding about that. And then the work is, am I living my understanding? And there's a lot of action in there because getting some understanding is not that hard. Often living genuine understanding is a steep challenge because it almost inevitably means a chip away from the ego or the way I want it. Okay? So what the Buddha is talking to finally is the absolute, the unconditioned, the deathless, whatever you want to call it. It's not that far away. I mean, the the fact that everyone is hearing right now without effort, that's awareness. That's the deathless. That's the unconditioned. That you wake up out of the middle of a fantasy while you're sitting, that moment of waking up, that's the unconditioned. You can't chase it. You can't make it up. You can't understand it. And it happens. So part of this this second order conditioning is to provide the foundation so the mind actually begins to appreciate and can open into what the Buddha's ultimate teachings are about the absolute. And we're always moving back and forth. We're always in the world of the relative. This is a bell. This is a stick. I'm a guy. You're a lady. We know that. And if if we're not clear about that, We have to do other kinds of practices, Um, So there's the there's this second order of conditioning. And what we've been talking about up to this point is that the work of relationship is also in this realm. Now I'm back to the fork in the road, right? So I'm in whatever relationship I'm in. I've got a foundation of when I'm sitting and the mind sparks in some way. There's a there's a a thought that creates sensations in the body that identify as sad or sparks in a way that creates sensations in the body that identify as anger or fear or anxiety. There's the seeing of that and then the intention to turn back to the sensations and the breath. And to to be with that and to watch that to begin to really know, not just, oh, I read about impermanence. Let me see what's on the next page. But to really begin to taste that this is this is tremendously dynamic. And then no matter what the mind calls it, no matter what label is put on it, fear, anger, whatever, that's not it. That's a convention from the, from the relative that we can use to communicate with each other. It's like the label on the suitcase. Anger, fear. Right? Open it up and it's quite differentiated. There are sensations that are moving. There's heat. There are no sensations in the back maybe right there's a flushing in the face that's all moving if you stay and you're experiencing that already I mean everybody has known directly that no single thought or feeling no single sensation has stayed continuously nobody's had a thought that stays nobody's had a sensation that stays nothing stays this is the truth of impermanence and this is what we're learning. It's Matthew will be talking about this tomorrow, but this is the, the bringing together of shamatha vipassana. It really is seeing, and in that seeing, what is true emerges. Right? It emerges naturally. And there's the insight, oh, this moves. What I call it is not it. And there's no me doing it. There's no me doing it, and at some point, hopefully, we'll get to this whole thing about the me, because if we really deeply taste impermanence, it permeates everything. You know, which one of those images is in the mirror or me? Yeah. Do I decide which thought comes to mind? I've noticed, and I think most of you have, that I'm not deciding how this body ages. Right, I mean, if I was in charge of this, (laughs) right, forty year forty year old guy with sixty seven years of experience, we're good. (laughs) Doesn't work that way. It's choiceless for sure, right? And it's changing all the time. Pick up a baby picture. You know, I pick up a picture of when I was a little kid with a teddy bear and a trike, and I see a recent picture. It's like. Wow, what happened here? <laughs> you know? So that these, these are moving all the time. There's no thing there from, from a certain point of view, from a certain direct experience. Right? So you see how this moves back and forth between the, the relative and the absolute. I mean, if I say, hey, Matthew, Matthew goes, yeah, Doug, that's the, the relative in action. But if I'm really confused about what this thing is that that label Doug points to, then I start to do all sorts of weird stuff. Like I imagine that I have to defend myself from an insult. What's the self that's defending itself against the insult? On close examination, what is that? So all of these things are coming up in relationship. They, they show us the aversive mind, they show us fear. Right? I get cut off in traffic. The body adrenalizes and the mind jumps in with some sort of story. Usually not a very helpful story. Right? Certainly a sort story that is a source of angst suffering for this being. The guy in the other car he's like a block away and I'm still like, oh, you cut me off. <laughs> kind of nut, right? When you hear it like that, it's kind of nuts. And, and by the way, this is normal human nuttiness. Right? There's no judgment here. There's no, you know, oh, I should be doing it different. No. no. This is what happens. And when that begins to be seen clearly, as the reactive mind, I no longer start to place so much blame out there. Right? I, don't, I don't worry so much about whether you behave the way I think you should because it's got nothing to do with what's going on over here. My business is over here in some way given you know reasonable parameters. You're coming at me with a baseball bat. We're having a different conversation. Right? But that's not what usually happens for most of us. Right? But the body-mind reacts. Somebody looks at you funny and it's like, What? You looking at me? <laughs> yeah, I'm looking. at You looking. At, and, and there it goes. Right? Just from that. And we wonder why the world's in such a mess. So this creates some space. When I really begin to see that what this mind is saying about its perception is only a story about a perception and not the truth, my life begins to shift. Can you see how that begins to happen? Is some of this, at least a little clearer or as clear as mud, So give me a hand here. Let me, if it's a little clear, let me hear it. Let me see. Yeah? Okay. And if it's not, let me see some of those. (laughs) Are we done yet? (laughs) Where's Matthew when I need him? (laughs) So this brings a, a kind of Peace. Into one's life, because we begin to see that it's not personal. These things are choiceless, they're reactions, they're conditions. They're like, uh, the doctor hit your knee with the mallet and the knee jerks. It's a reflex. It's not personal. These things are happenings. They're doing us in a certain kind of way. Much thinking is simply reflexive. And when we when we begin to see, not just understand from the eyebrows up, but really begin to see that these th- happenings are simply that, choiceless, impermanent, not personal. And that you're not responsible for how I feel. In fact, I'm not even responsible for how I feel because I'm not doing any of this stuff. This is truly a choiceless happening. Right? And the foundation for this is sitting still, noticing the mind wanting to make up all kinds of stuff, waking up in the midst of that, and using that to come back to where our life is actually at, which is here. You know, it's not what my partner did to me a week ago, you know, or the last retreat I was on. I had the best retreat three months ago, you know, and it's just not been happening for me this time. It's like, and, of course it's not happening for you this time. We could, ancient Greek history isn't happening for you this time. It's the same thing. It's right. It's the same thing. And so the encouragement is to, you know, and Ramdas is highly overused, be here now. You know, and to know it. And the way we know it is when we wake up out of being brought away in fantasy land. We try and come back to home base, which is here. This, right? The same thing. Standing in the in the grocery line, and you know the person has got at least two hundred dollars worth of groceries on the on that thing, and her credit card doesn't work, or his credit card. He left his checkbook at home. What a knucklehead, right? And and the mind gets going, right? You know. I can, I can tell some of you are familiar with this. <laughs> I don't know anything about this guy. Nothing. Nothing. And in two seconds, he's a knucklehead. He's inconsiderate. He's a jerk. Wow. And it happens just like that. The practice is to see that, that the Word is not the thing. These ideas are not telling any truth about this other human being. And it very rarely does, because thinking never, ever captures the whole thing, ever. Its nature is to fragment, it's great at pulling a piece out and examining it closely, and then it gets confused and thinks it's got the whole thing. So, the bumper sticker "Don't believe what you think." It's it's a really good one, right? Because this, you know, there's this there's this funny thing that goes on where a thought comes up. Thought says to itself, "Well, I thought it, so it must be true." So it's true. I'll keep thinking it, and out of that, our behavior is driven along with the physical arousal. And we're we're pushed along. We like to imagine that we're doing the thinking. It's actually thinking that's doing us. And this work of relationship is a way to create some space and to begin to to loosen that reflexive link, which, by the way, is extremely powerful. It's not just about our individual minds. It's about the human mind that's been conditioned in this way for thousands of years. Okay? So you take on this practice, it's no joke, because it's not just your own mind you're working with. It's the human mind in microcosm. Okay? And and that's why this work requires the spirit of a long distance runner. Uh, it, you will get you will definitely get clear insights, you will get moments of great freedom, of intimacy where self and other completely drop away. Many of those you'll simply miss because the mind can't believe it's actually opened up in that way. Right? But with some steady attention and work, the mind begins to actually understand, not at an intellectual level, but at a, almost a cellular level, this this tremendous openness that it is, you know, we've all had the experience of the, the sort of expansiveness and we've also had the experience of the contraction. Remember the law of impermanence, right? it, it moves. There was a, a student who went to a teacher and said, so tell me what the truth is, you know, very frustrated, very, you know, motivated. And and the teacher stopped and looked and said, it just moved. It just moved, right? So very dynamic. And so moments of, of spacious, calm, and then it's on its way to becoming something else. Everything's on its way to becoming something else. That's both the, the mystery, the joy, the horror <laughs> to the conditioned mind, right? So, you know, if you take a, if you take a te- tablespoon of, of salt and you put it in a shot glass and fill it up with water, chug that down, pretty salty, right? You take that same tablespoon of salt, put it in a five gallon drum, hardly taste it, probably won't taste it. That's what much of these practices are about. Our nature is open and spacious. The mind of thinking is constantly setting parameters and it's the center of that is me. And that never gets questioned. You know, what is that really? Because as long as there's a center, there's a circumference. And much of this work is seeing where the mind sets up these arbitrary limitations. I can't sit like this for another second. You know, if I don't scratch my ear, it'll fall off. I know I have a tarantula sitting on top of my head (laughs) absolutely for certain. I found my first deer tick of the season the other day and, and for the for off and on the rest of the day, I you know, there's a tick on my ears, a tick on my cheek, it's like right. So this is how it goes. And the mind is always setting these limitations. Practice is seeing that, in that seeing, it's in the seeing that the openness begins to occur. It's not what the eye does. I can't I can't make this stuff up, I can't understand it, and I can't get free. A couple of reasons, right? The eye is completely limited. It's an artifact of conditioning. It's made up of images, thoughts, memories. What's there to get free? And there is freedom. And it's in the seeing. Trust the seeing. Come to trust those moments of waking up that you don't do. Come to trust this natural awareness that sees, hears, tastes, and know that whatever's happening is on its way to becoming something else. You like it, you don't like it hang around, it's changing. And this is a great gift that's been passed down to us. So um, I think I will spare myself the embarrassment and Matthew the need to get up off that chair and smack me by calling this the end of the talk. (laughs) Can we sit for just a minute together?